Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. It was certainly an interesting week across the national park system. Word came from John Day Fossil Beds National Monument in Oregon that researchers there had discovered the fossilized remains of a hooved carnivore. Can you imagine? A horse that likes a meaty meal from time to time? At Zion National Park in Utah, wildlife biologists spotted a condor chick, one that is believed to be the 1,000th condor chick born since recovery efforts began for the California condor. And for those of us who struggle with math, contributing photographer Rebecca Latson showed us geometry lessons we can find in national park landscapes. You can find those and other stories about the national parks at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, I talk with Stephen Trimble, who edited the Capitol Reef Reader, a new book containing an incredible anthology of essays revolving around that national park in Utah's Red Rock Country. Erica Zambello makes a short visit to the old post office building in Washington, D.C., and we end the show with a look at two amazing national monuments in Arizona. We all know what incredible cauldrons of beauty and history national parks hold for visitors to marvel at. You can view them as libraries of natural and cultural history. And like most libraries, you can get lost in the stacks if you don't have a guide. Stephen Trimble has put together the guide you need to more fully appreciate Capitol Reef National Park in Utah. Now, it's not your typical national park guidebook. There's no trail information, no dining or lodging information. Rather, it's an incredible wealth of information in the essays that Trimble has pulled together for us in the Capitol Reef Reader. Essays by the likes of Clarence Dutton, who traveled the Southwest with Major John Wesley Powell, Ed Abbey, and that literary conservation giant, Wallace Stegner. But there also are pieces by names we're not familiar with. Greg Gordon describes Capitol Reef as a landscape of desire. Jonathan Thau digs into the park's history with uranium. And Stephen Sims teaches us about the Fremont culture that long ago lived in this landscape. These and other authors share their wisdom on the cultures that called the Capitol Reef region home, instruct us on the rich and unique geology there, and describe the incredible effort that went into creating Capitol Reef National Park. Welcome, Steve. Now, this was no overnight project and obviously a labor of love that I'm guessing sprang from some years ago when you were a seasonal ranger at Capitol Reef. Uh, that's absolutely right, Kurt. And, and I'm delighted to have this conversation with you about a book that I started 45 years ago without even knowing it. Uh, I was a seasonal ranger at Capitol Reef in 1975 when I was in my early 20s and did what every seasonal ranger did. I started reading up on the background of the park so I could be a competent ranger and give a good campfire time and started reading those elders that you mentioned uh, at the opening, Clarence Dutton and Ed Abbey and Wallace Stegner and Ann Zwinger and Willa Cather and all the rest of the folks who had written about the Colorado Plateau. And lo and behold, decades later, I had this assignment to edit a Capitol Reef reader and dive back into that literature and look for the best stuff I knew about already and find things that I had yet to discover. 
Now, I must admit that the the book caught me off guard because I've got the Rocky Mountain Reader and I've got the Pacific Crest Trail Reader and I think maybe even the Grand Canyon Reader. And, and those present the parks or the trail in from the perspective of the recreationalist out there. Whereas your book, The Capital Reef Reader, that you've done an incredible job pulling together, really does uncover the, the, the history and the geology of the region. How did you go about collecting these essays? Uh, I can't imagine, you know, how long it must have taken you. Well, it took a couple of years off and on, um, which is actually fairly quick for a book. Uh, some of my big books have taken 10 years off and on. But, you know, I had a head start. I've been writing and photographing on the Colorado Plateau uh, really my whole adult life, and working on books that included the literature of the plateau. And so I had I had a pretty good uh, beginning point. I, I knew a lot about where the great writing was, about the plateau in general, and quite a bit about the great writing about Capitol Reef specifically. But I, I wanted to give the reader a primer on this park. You know, one of the writers, Jonathan Thau, that you mentioned titled his master's thesis, The Forgotten National Park. And Capitol Reef is just not as well known as the other mighty five national parks here in Utah, Arches and Canyonlands and Zion and Bryce Canyon. And even so, I found a very rich literature. Uh, It turns out that there may be a richer literature for Capitol Reef than there is for some of those other better known, you know, more highly visited parks. And I think it's because there was always a through through route, a through highway through central Utah that came right down Capitol Gorge, right through the middle of Capitol Reef when it was a small national monument and then later a national park. And there was a little village that's now the park headquarters, Fruta, pioneer Mormon village, that gave people a sense of home. People wrote with nostalgia and affection about growing up there. Plus, it's really the type locality for the Fremont Indian culture. And archaeologists have been coming to Capitol Reef since the 1920s as a, a major spot for understanding Native people on the plateau. And so people have been drawn back to this place over and over again, not specifically for the park, but for the place. And in defining Capitol Reef in this book, I was a little loose with park boundaries. I didn't worry too much about those zigzag straight lines on the map. Mm-hmm. I, I define Capitol Reef as Capitol Reef country. Everything from the east rim of Boulder Mountain, where you look out across the water pocket fold, to the Henry Mountains on the uh, eastern edge of the park that mark that boundary, that, that uh, horizon you see from everywhere in the park. And then the, the whole 100-mile length of the water pocket fold, which is the central feature of the park. Did you approach the task aiming or striving for a common thread that tied all these essays together? Or rather, did you go into the project hoping to create a a rich quilt of literature centered around the park and, as you mentioned, the surrounding landscape? I like that rich quilt of literature. We should have asked you to do a blurb (laughs) for the back cover. Um, I I just went looking for the best writing I could find that captured the spirit of the place and told us something about the park in words that did that better than anyone else. And uh, I started by just compiling a big stack of excerpts, personal narratives, philosophical riffs, historic and scientific records, a lot of different kinds of writing. 
And then I started looking for the themes that, that you were looking for in your question and ordered them, uh, starting with the, the view from Boulder Mountain, which is the place where so many people start driving uh, Utah Highway 12, that scenic byway that goes from Torrey to Boulder and onto Escalante and Panguitch, and looking out over this incredible expanse of rock. And then paid a lot of attention to Native heritage, not only the Fremont people, but later tribal peoples and the explorers, and kind of went through time at the beginning, and then started thinking about all the different ways of reacting, responding to that landscape. Uh, naturalist writers, the people who lived in the park at Fruta and at some of the other places where more recent permanent residents have been. I've got lyrics from a song in there. I've got a cowboy poet. Uh, I've got the story of conserving the place. And then toward the end, I, I do what you might expect in, in, in a more predictable way of looking at the park from the perspective of hikers and canyoneers and uh, people that are using the park now as a place of refuge and, and uh, restoration. Now, did the um, the folks at the University of Utah Press, which has published this book, um, did they have a list of, of uh, authors they wanted you to look at, or did they just outline the project and say, go after it? Well, I, I was really lucky, Kurt. Um, the University of Utah Press is doing a series of National Park readers, and they came to me and asked if I would edit the Capitol Reef volume, and they gave me the other books that they've done in the series, Rocky Mountain, Zion, Glacier as samples, but then they, they kind of let me have at it. They gave me a lot of freedom and they knew that I knew the park very well and knew the lit literature well. And then uh, we have this lovely opportunity to run photographs through the book. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a photographer too. And I've been taking pictures there through all this, this long, long time I've been visiting the park. And we got a little grant from the nature conservancy of Utah to run color throughout the, the book. So there are 100 photographs sprinkled through more than 50 writers. And so it's a, it's a substantial book, but the, the press was great. They, they let me do the book that I had sort of wanted to do without even knowing I wanted to do it all these years. We've been talking today with Stephen Trimble, who edited the new Capitol Reef Reader, uh, intriguing and very rich book about Capitol Reef National Park. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a minute with Steve. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. 
visit them at drytortugas.com. We're back now with Stephen Trimble, who edited the Capitol Reef Reader, a new book that really explores the background of Capitol Reef National Park in Utah. Steve, the the beauty of the book that I found is that there's really no beginning or middle and end to follow in consuming the narrative. Folks can pretty much dive in wherever they want, although you you do in the uh, table of contents give them a little little context of what they'll find in essays throughout the book. But um, it's nicely done that way. I I like being able to just open up a book and, and start reading wherever my interest takes me. Uh, you bet. And I know I don't really expect people to sit down and read it from, from cover to cover, starting at page one. I hope they'll read my introduction, which gives them a sense of not only what's in the book, but who I am, who their guide is in the book. But sure, I, I expect people to leaf through it and things will catch their eye. Uh, maybe a, a writer whose work they know, someone like Ellen Malloy or Ed Abbey or Craig Childs or Chuck Bowden, some of those better known people. Uh, If they're particularly interested in history, they might see some of the historic pictures from the little village of Fruta and start reading reminiscences of folks that actually attended school at the Fruta schoolhouse back in the early part of the 20th century. There are a couple of places where I feature artists as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, James Swenson, a professor down at Brigham Young University, is fascinated by photography in national parks. He's made that sort of a specialty. And he, I, asked, I asked him if he had anything to contribute to the book, figuring that he must have written something already because I'd heard him speak about photography in Capitol Reef. But he wrote me a brand new piece about Minor White's incredible abstract black and white image, Moan Copi Strata from 1962. Hmm. He describes as Capitol Reef's most famous photograph, which is probably only true for people who pay a lot of attention to the history of uh, photography in America. But uh, it's a gorgeous picture. And then I wrote a a quick survey of other artists and photographers who had visited the park myself. So there there are just lots of ways in. And I hope that readers find two or three of those that intrigue them, whether it's cycling through the park or canyoneering or uh, going with um, Ann Whitaker on a very short journey where she writes a letter to her grandfather about how he uses Cathedral Valley is a place of healing from PTSD in World War II. You know, the park, the park really interacts with people in so many ways. People have different kinds of relationships with this place. And that's what I wanted to capture in the book. Well, I think you've done it well. Um, and, and talk about the depth of the, the content in here. I mean, 160 years of words that come across and, and, and bring you face-to-face at times with the landscape and the people. And I notice even Butch Cassidy makes an appearance. I love that story. So uh, the, the little cabin that you drive by on the highway down the Fremont River through the park, the Behunin cabin, uh, I've got a piece in the book by Ruby Tippetts, who was the granddaughter of Elijah Cutler Buchanan, who built that little building and intended to live there with his family of 12 or 13 kids. And uh, Ruby was this very delightful woman that, I got to know just a tiny bit back in the 1970s when I was a ranger at the park. And she wrote a book, as she put it, uh, sort of dreaming, dreaming the life that that family would have lived there. She was using family stories that I'm sure she embellished a bit, but she was trying to capture what it felt like. And in that story, she repeats 
a family story that matches up with what I saw when I was a ranger there on the back of the little Buhunan cabin. There was carved in the rock the signature Butch Cassidy. And the the park didn't really know much about it, but Ruby said her family was there when Butch came through and carved it on the back of the of the stones. And there was actually an old timer who came into the visit the visitor center when I worked there in 1975, who said he was with Butch when he carved his signature. And of course, Butch Cassidy was born in Circleville and often came back and forth through Wayne County, the, the home county for Capitol Reef, uh, from Robber's Roost over by Canyonlands, going back to Circleville to visit his family. And there are lots of stories of Butch in Wayne County. So I think it might be real, but the Park Service, either not quite sure that it was real or just to protect it, uh, plastered it over a few years ago. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd be remiss as a journalist if if I didn't bring um, current events into play with um, one of the chapters in your book, one of the essays. We're going back to Jonathan Thau, the third time he gets mentioned in our short conversation here. And the, the park's history with uranium, you, you look most recently at what the current administration has done in, in pulling apart the, the Bears Ears National Monument and the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and, and all the subterfuge that some believe uh, took place to open up some lands to, to mining and energy development and maybe even cattle grazing. Um, I wrote a piece um, last week about wilderness in the national park system and how there's a 26 million acres, I believe, of potential, possible, eligible wilderness and um, how secure that is. And then, you know, people say, oh, it's, it's safe. Nothing's going to happen to it. And then you read Jonathan Thau's piece on the uranium history and the uranium mining that uh, came to the park inside the, the monument, I guess it was at the time, um, shortly after World War II. It was a, a, a shocking piece to me of uh, what we all should be aware of today in, in the politics and how we manage our public lands. Absolutely. And, and there, there are just so many things right now that we've always thought of as absolutes and norms that are just being destroyed. And the parks are part of that territory where we just have to assume nothing is sacred, nothing is completely protected. You know, it's the old saw in conservation. You, only, you have to win the conservation battle over and over and over again, and you only lose once. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1950s, the uranium boom hit the plateau. And at that time, the founding superintendent at Capitol Reef, Charlie Kelly, who was a a cranky, interesting character who uh, spanned the the range from being an early member of the KKK in Utah (laughs) and a sort of uh, major hater of Mormon people and the Mormon religion and the Mormon culture, ended up as superintendent at this park in remote Utah, surrounded by Mormon villages but really fought hard to protect the park. And in the 1950s, when we were in the middle of the uranium boom, trying to find every little scrap of that yellow mineral we could, the local prospectors, all the local folks in in Wayne County and Southern Utah were determined to strike it rich and pressured the congressional delegation to open up the monument for prospecting. And they did it. They, They were able to open the monument and go in there with Jeeps and cats and make roads and look for someplace they could strike it rich. And they found nothing. There was really only one decent prospect uh, at the mouth of Grand Wash. And Charlie Kelly just kept pushing back and fighting and bringing people in to take a look at the damage. And 
after just a couple of years, he was able to persuade Congress and the National Park Service to shut that down. But uh, you're so right, Kurt. We're we're always at risk, and uh, Capitol Reef has right been right at the center of those conservation battles on the Colorado Plateau right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as part of that gigantic Escalante National Monument proposed in the 1930s that would have saved almost all of southern Utah and probably prevented Glen Canyon Dam from having been built. That monument would have covered part of Capitol Reef, and uh, the little National Monument established in 1937 was was one of the outgrowths of that proposal uh, to to protect the area right around Fruta, right along the Fremont River and Capitol Gorge and Grand Wash, that central part of the park that most people see. That's really the only part most people see the the highway along the river and the scenic drive. And then when the park was expanded, the monument was expanded greatly by LBJ uh, without any input locally that riled up the traditional families who don't much like federal regulation, federal designation, and later expanded to a national park. And forever after we've thought about whether or not to pave the Burr Trail, the dirt road through the park, right up to this spring when the BLM under the current administration gave the counties the go ahead to pave another stretch leading up to the park. The Burr Trail is still dirt within Capitol Reef National Park, but now it's almost all paved outside the park, taking away a little bit of that extra adventure. Yeah, there are so many um, rich essays in, in this, and, and from well-known authors and, and from those that uh, might not be so well-known. Is there any one particular essay that, that really pulled at you as you were going through amassing all these manuscripts? Uh, yes, and I can give you two answers to that. Uh, one of the the sort of heroes of the Capitol Reef community is a guy named Ward Roylance. And Ward Roylance was a travel writer working out of Salt Lake for most of the latter half of the 20th century. And he and his wife moved to Torrey in 1976 and lived there for almost another 20 years, writing from his home, which eventually became, after his death, the Entrada Institute, the little art center in the town of Torrey, the gateway community to Capitol Reef. Uh, Ward wrote a, he wrote a, uh, really a love letter to the Colorado Plateau uh, called The Enchanted Wilderness and wrote a guidebook to the park that I I didn't remember paying a lot of attention to, but it turns out he was a, he was a really good writer and speaks of, as, as he put it, the amazing erosional intricacy, maze, tangle, and labyrinth. There is no end to aesthetic discovery the possibilities for visual experience seem boundless here. You know, he just reveled in the erosional variety of this place where you know, the, the monocline of the water pocket fold is this tipped up uh, series of rock layers. It's, it's almost as if we uh, just took every, every earth layer around and put it in one place. Mm-hmm. And uh, every every rock formation in the Colorado Plateau, practically, and put it in one place, tipped, up, tipped it up so we could expose it, and then eroded the hell out of it and gave us this amazing variety, which I think is, is something writer after writer comments on. So Ward was sort of a discovery. The, the other way I would answer that question is that I tried my very best to get in my favorite writers one way or another. So I found a couple of places where Ed Abbey had... 
uh, either talked about Capitol Reef or talked about the country that surrounds Capitol Reef in a way that made sense to include. I wanted to include Ann Zwinger, the great naturalist writer, and uh, found a place where she'd written about Aspen on Boulder Mountain. And I really wanted to include Ellen Malloy, who is, I think, the, the great writer in the book, probably. Hmm. I, I love Ellen's writing. She lived in Bluff up until the time she died young in the, the uh, in her fifties. In, in in I have a short excerpt from her book, uh, The Anthropology of Turquoise, where she writes about uh, Slickrotica, the wildflowers that grow on Slickrot. Yeah, yeah. And you know, she's funny. She's smart. And she's, she's really writing about Comb Ridge, the long spine of Navajo sandstone outside her back door in Bluff. But everything she says applies equally to the long spine of Navajo sandstone of the water pocket fold. Is there, um, what, what do you hope that readers take away from this work? A couple of things. Uh, just, I hope they come away just thunderstruck by the richness of the place and how little they knew. That's certainly the way I feel every time I go there. I hope they come away falling in love with the place in all its glory, its beauty, its complexity, its challenge. I hope they come away with a sense that people have been living in this place for 12,000 years. And that relationship with the place is not new. It doesn't date from the Mormon villagers who came to settle in the 1800s, but it goes back through Navajo people and Ute people and Paiute people, right back to ancestral Puebloans and and Fremont people. And so we're just another wave of folks who are here trying to understand what is a, a challenging place. There's actually one sequence of, of excerpts in the book that really, I think, bring this alive. Uh, the, the first more recent permanent resident uh, after those centuries and centuries of Native people was Ephraim Hanks, who came to Pleasant Creek, one of the permanent streams that flows through the water pocket fold, and started a ranch uh, where the scenic drive now ends, right on Pleasant Creek, called Floral Ranch back in, in uh, the 1880s. And over the years, other people owned that ranch, and I had a chance to interview Billy Bullard, who lived there in the 1930s, hmm. and Lert Nee, who started a guest ranch there when he bought the place from Billy Bullard in 1939 and lived there for decades. You know, giving newcomers to the to the territory great tours in his little jeep. Uh, Joseph Munch, the famous landscape photographer, the father of David Munch, was his favorite client. And then Chip Ward, another fine Western writer, uh, leased the guest ranch from Lert Nee in the 1970s, and he and his wife lived there. And Chip writes about it. And today, it's a Utah Valley University field station. And I was able to include three short pieces by uh, English language learners from around the world who were coming to Capital Reef and responding as citizens of Saudi Arabia and uh, hmm. the Ukraine and places that are so different from the Red Rock country. And so as you go through the book, I think you just get a sense that this is a, a place that is there for us to visit and respond to personally in all these different ways that are so rich and so powerful and so restorative. Well, I really appreciate your time. Uh, we've been speaking with Stephen Trimble, who edited the new Capital Reef Reader, uh, incredible anthology of writing um, built around the landscape of Capital Reef National Park. 
definitely something to add to your National Park bookcase. Steve, thanks so much again. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Kurt. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donor support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. My parents and I circled the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. Our raincoat hoods pulled tight around our faces to keep out the summer drizzle. No, we weren't guests at the hotel. We were searching for the entrance to the old post office tower. Under an agreement with the General Services Administration, the National Park Service provides interpretation for this particular wing of the building, built from 1892 to 1899. When we finally found the correct entrance, we bypassed a Starbucks to enter a gleaming hallway, the walls lined with the history of Washington as an early capital city. Today, the old post office is the tallest building in D.C. after the Washington Monument, and I had heard that it offered unparalleled views of the city. Only a few decades after its completion, the building was scheduled to be torn down. Ironically, it was the Great Depression itself that saved the old post office, as funding shortfalls made demolition impossible. Used as government offices until the 1960s, it was once again scheduled for a speedy demise when a group of citizens banded together to save the historic landmark. They must have been convincing, for preservation of the old post office tower began in 1977. Fast forward another few decades, and in 2013, the General Services Administration leased the building to a company owned by President Donald Trump. Today, the structure operates as a luxury hotel, in addition to the tower space open to the public. We shuffled to an elevator at the end of the hallway, chatting for a few moments with the park ranger on duty about the crowd that had lined up to reach the top of the 315-foot tower earlier in the day. With limited space and the two elevators needed to reach the top, progress can be slow. However, we had somehow missed any line and easily breezed upwards. The first elevator, glass, offered views of the inside of the hotel as we ascended the tower. A second ranger stood in front of the second elevator, taking us a short way into the tower itself. The views were amazing. 
On all four sides, we could gaze across the city, from the National Monument to the Capitol Building to the White House. Far across Washington, we spotted the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, its outline jutting prominently from the landscape below. From our high vantage point, we spotted green roofs, solar panels, and locals and visitors alike going about their business on the streets far below. The rain we had experienced throughout the morning had let up just enough to afford us unfettered views of some of the most beautiful buildings in the United States, constructed to convey a sense of America's power to citizens and the world. In DC, a height restriction adopted in 1910 means there are few tall buildings that can interfere with the general urban skyline. The views afforded by the old post office are rare, and I'll remember the red and beige rooftops of Washington every time I look at the National Park stamp I collected at the site. This is Erica Zambello, signing out from Washington, D.C. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Cool Ponderosa Pine forests, ancient life, and volcanism are all within reach in Arizona's high country. The gateway town of Flagstaff makes a perfect base camp to visit four national monuments that protect ancient Native American dwellings and tell the stories of their occupants' lives. Of course, the Grand Canyon to the north is the main draw for many visitors to Arizona, but take some time to explore these lesser-known sites as well. The stories within these monuments, Walnut Canyon, Sunset Crater Volcano, Wapatki, and Montezuma Castle, overlap, but a long weekend tour will provide you with a deeper understanding of some of the cultural and geologic mysteries of the Southwest. Designated by four different presidents, the monuments embrace a landscape dotted with well-sheltered cliff dwellings and shaped by volcanoes. We're going to divide the four into two shows. Today, let's look at Woodpotki National Monument and nearby Sunset Crater Volcano National Monument. You can start your tour with a visit to Woodpotki. Designated back on December 9, 1924 by President Calvin Coolidge, Woodpotki is approximately an hour's drive north of Flagstaff. Take Highway 89A north for a few dozen miles and make the turn to the east to reach this unusual monument. Here you'll find the start of a 35-mile-long loop road that also accesses Sunset Crater Volcano National Monument, so you can choose not to backtrack. The Visitor Center is located next to the three-story Wapatki Pueblo with its more than 100 rooms that once housed 300 people. 
There are more than 800 identified ruins here, tucked between the Ponderosa-dotted mountains and the Painted Desert, and all within a distinctive dark red color of the native Moenkopi sandstone, punctuated with black volcanic sand. Though first inhabited around 500, there was an influx of residents after the volcanic eruptions of Sunset Crater in the 11th century. It was later abandoned by 1215. The Wapatki Pueblo is thought to have been the largest, tallest, and most influential Pueblo during those times. Hopi may have inhabited the buildings afterwards, and in the 1880s, sheep herders used some of the structures as a camp. There are five accessible ruins here, and you might visit the Lomatki and Box Canyon Pueblos via an easy half-mile trail. These Pueblos are built on the edge of a deep canyon. The Citadel Pueblo is built on a small hill with a limestone sinkhole to the south. Once you take a walk to one of these Pueblos, you'll spot other ruins dotting the desert. For a nice view, take the half-mile Doni Mountain Trail to the top of a volcanic cinder cone. The park rangers also offer guided hikes during the cooler months, which will allow you to see areas of the monument otherwise not open to the public. Discovery hikes are short day hikes, available on some Saturdays from November through March, where you'll explore petroglyphs, archaeology, and the flora and fauna of the area. During four weekends in October, the Crack in the Rock hikes are a two-day weekend adventure into the backcountry, with participants chosen by lottery. These 25-mile strenuous hikes are limited to 12 people, and you must be able to carry your own backpack. A highlight of the trek is visiting the remote Crack in the Rock Pueblo. Check the park's website to see the schedule for this fall's hikes. The hikes are also offered in April, so check in early spring if this sounds appealing. Now, there is no lodging, overnight parking, or camping at Wapatki, and there is a $15 per person entrance fee that covers both Wapatki and Sunset Crater Volcano National Monuments. Hiking schedules and more information are available at the Visitor Center and online. From Wapatki, continue along the Loop Road and access the eastern entrance to Sunset Crater Volcano National Monument. On the way, be sure to stop at the Painted Desert Vista View, photograph the unique landscape, and marvel at the Kanawa Lava Flow. Stop again within the monument at the Cinder Hills Overlook and look over the mix of volcanic flows, cinder cones, and lava tubes, with meadows and ponderosa pines interspersed between. This monument was designated on May 26, 1930, by President Herbert Hoover after a movie company proposed to blow up an area of this unique geologic area. You can take in a number of interpretive programs and spend time at the Visitor Center getting acquainted with the natural and human history of the monument. Sunset Crater Volcano embraces rugged terrain. In 1917, Grace Spradlin wrote this of a climb. Well... It's one of the queerest trails you ever saw, for the whole mountain in nothing but cinders. The trail goes nearly straight up the side of the mountain, and the cinders make it so you take three steps up, slide back two. Today, for hikers, much of the rocky train is sharp, brittle, and unforgiving. Head to the Lava Flow Trail, and you'll find a self-guided, mile-long trail. Be sure to grab one of the interpretive booklets available at the Visitor Center before you take the hike. Other options include two trails that leave the Lennox Crater Trailhead. The Lennox Crater Trail is a one-mile steep trail, and the Ah Flow Trail winds a quarter-mile through the lava flows. If you want a long hike, 
Take this seven miles to the top of O'Leary Peak, accessible from U.S. Forest Service lands. Sunrises and sunsets here are spectacular, a photographer's dream, with dark, starry skies, and if you come in winter, a covering of brilliant white snow against the black lava. Once you're done, complete your loop back to Flagstaff in about 20 minutes along Highway 89. Next week, we'll take a look at Walnut Canyon National Monument to the east of Flagstaff, as well as Montezuma Castle National Monument to the south of Flagstaff. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.